As we read this text, I don't know about you, but as I was reflecting on it this week, thinking about it, considering what it has for us and how we understand who God is and and how he calls us to live life, it's a pretty challenging text. Not just a challenging text because it calls us to serve others. I mean, there's that challenge, and pretty clearly we hear the challenge there. Go and serve others. Go and clothe others. Go and feed others. Go and visit and comfort and bring love to others when they need it. But more so, the challenge comes for me that this behavior seems to be tied to what? Salvation. I want you to think about that just for a moment. In the text itself, we see the king giving reward to people who were obedient, the sheep of the text, based upon what? Their behavior. What they did. How they lived. And likewise, for the goats, we see them receiving the consequence for their lack of behavior. And it's all tied to their eternity. Does anyone else find that a little challenging? Is it just me? Anyone? Doesn't it seem to hazard something that we as Christians believe is a fundamental truth of how we receive the gift of eternal life? We receive it by grace. Grace, an undeserved gift based not at all upon what we do because we can't do anything enough to earn the right to be in God's presence for eternity because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But here, in the text of Scripture, we have a tie not just to a relationship with God, but a tie to eternity based upon behavior. That's where the challenge comes for me. And in some ways... I've been a little uncomfortable thinking about preaching this text this morning because it's one of those things where a fundamental truth of what we believe about grace being the work of God, undeserved work in our life by which we received salvation, that that all of a sudden seems to be called into question. Okay, how do we deal with that? Well, first let's look at the text. And let's look at the text itself, but let's look at where the text is placed. And that's why I hope you do have your Bibles open. And if you don't, I would encourage you to, to Matthew 25. And in fact, if you wanted to go back even more, Matthew 24, you can see what the timing is of this text, especially even if you look forward, Matthew 26 and following. You're going to see, if you look there, that... Jesus is just about to be led towards his crucifixion. It's coming very soon. 
In fact, there's only one other activity, his feet being anointed in the book of Matthew, before really the torture and the crucifixion story begins, or the, the, uh, the uh, Last Supper with the disciples, and then on from there. So it seems that if Jesus knows enough of how this story is going to go, that what he is giving these disciples just before the end of his ministry is pretty key stuff. I want you to think about how you would act and what you would say to people in your life if you knew the time was very short. You'd get to the important things, right? I mean, we'd want to say to people the fundamental things we want them to hear before it is that we are gone. So Jesus is teaching the disciples the really fundamental, important stuff. And look at what he does in the... There's three parables, three teaching moments in Matthew 24 and 25. Actually, Matthew 25, you can go back to 24 a little bit, but... All these things are pretty important stuff. First of all, is the parable of the ten virgins. If you know the parable of the ten virgins, that's really fundamentally about being prepared. Be prepared because Christ will return. So you and I need to be, be prepared. We need to have oil for our lens. And the second story, the second parable, is the parable of the talents. You have been given gifts and abilities. You've been given an opportunity to serve God with those gifts and abilities. So do it. And if you don't, there's also consequence. So be prepared. Serve God with your talents and abilities. And then we get to this story. Go out and find those who are hungry and sick and in prison and naked and clothed. It's like Jesus, there's not enough time for him to get these words out because they're so key. Be prepared. Use your talents and go and serve others. Pillars of the kingdom of God. And then he's taken. He's crucified. And his ministry at that stage with the disciples is at an end. See, the disciples don't know it, but it's just about game on. Time is short. He really wants his followers to see that their faith has to have teeth. Here's what I mean by that. You can't just have faith that doesn't do something, that doesn't have energy behind it, that doesn't have sort of, uh, you know, that, that teeth that holds on to the most important things, that grabs hold and keeps you where you need to be. Faith has to have fruit for it truly to be shaped and formed and continuing to grow. The disciples are confronted with a startling reality. Following Jesus demands a response to the love offered in Christ, and there's consequence for ignoring that. You can't simply say, I have received the love of God in Jesus Christ, and just allow it to sit In some ways, that's grace abuse. Yes, it's an undeserved gift of God in Christ. God be praised for it. 
but for you and I to sit on that grace, that freely given gift, puts us in the realm of the goats who miss encountering Jesus in another's needs and continue to work out their salvation. We should feel a little conviction here. We should feel a sense of compulsion to ask the question, do I have the fluffy fur of a sheep or do I have the coarse hair of a goat? and how it is that I live out the life that God has given me. Because ultimately, we see at the end of the text, there's consequence. Either eternal life for the righteous, or eternal death, separation from God, for the unrighteous. For us to see the challenge of this text is important for how we understand our faith. For us to understand how we live, what we do, what we think about God's grace and it's working in us. How it has transformed us, given us the gift of his righteousness. We've received this gift. Now, what is it that we're going to do with it? Put it on a shelf in our hearts? Leave it there? In some senses, ignore it, thinking, I've got the golden ticket, it's all good a dangerous idea. Unfortunately, within the church, there's lots of people who live in that space. I know grace of Jesus. So I'm just... That, that, that clothing people, giving people food, going and visiting, that, that's not for me. I don't do that well. Well, what do I do? I sit really well in my lazy boy and I watch the History Channel. Or Fox News, please don't do that. It's not good for you. It's a challenge. It has to force us to wonder, where is it that I am expressing the gratitude in my life for God's grace to me? Let me be clear here. I'm not stepping out of traditional Reformed doctrine. This next statement is absolutely key. Grace is a free gift of God in Christ. We can't earn salvation. We can't get to that pinnacle that allows us to be in the presence of God with our behavior. But for us to respond to God's grace in our lives by living it out in the lives of others, it reflects God's transformation in us. It reflects this idea that what Christ did, what God gave to us in Christ, what we know through Christ in our lives actually has taken hold enough to make us new, to make us changed, to make us transformed and active in His kingdom of God, the kingdom of God. For us to sit back means that truly we've just allowed grace to become a stagnant plant in the heart of our lives. We're not flourishing it. We're not watering it by being actively pursuing encounters with Jesus and the needs and the lives of others. 
for us to ask the question, is my life sheep-like? Is an important question. And if it's not sheep-like, we have some important questions to ask ourselves about our standing before God in the gift of grace offered to us through Jesus Christ. If you know God's grace, how active are you within the kingdom of God in serving in the lives of others? How active are you, are, are, are you in pursuing encounters with Jesus in the needs of others? As he says, this you have done to others, you've done it to me. When I was in seminary, one of the great privileges of seminary is sitting in the student center with any number of different students and professors and faculty having conversation about the things of God. I was part of a group of four, we called ourselves the old guys. And the old guys in seminary were about age 35 and above. Me and another guy, Aaron, were the youngest of the old guys. Then there was Matt, who was about early 40s at the time. And then there was Phil, who was in his early 50s. We were the old guys. The rest of our class, except maybe a couple who were part-timers, were um, in their 20s or very early 30s. And, you know, we, after a little while, you can only hang out with young people so long before you need a little bit more sanity in your life, you know? So we'd sit together in the student center and talk at different points about different things of God. And one particular lunch hour, a young man joined us who was part of the young guard he was two years behind me in seminary, and this time in my seminary career, the four of us, Aaron, Matt, myself, and Phil, were preparing for oral comps, and oral comp, oral comprehensive exams are where you sit in front of two professors and a pastor. They can ask you any question they want about your seminary training, and basically they hammer you to the wall if you're wrong and you can't give them the right answers. It's a very stressful time. We were completely focused upon it, and it was everything that we were thinking about. And we're sitting at this table, and this young guy who's two years behind me sitting at the table, and we're just asking questions of each other, testing, you know, preparing ourselves for the exam. And this guy who's two years behind us is getting every single thing right. He's nailing it. This guy knew doctrine, he knew scripture, he knew the history of theology, he knew all the systems of atonement and how we see communion, and he knew all the councils, and he knew how the, the, the canon was uh, changed and, and adjusted over the years, and what time of the history of the church this Bible book was added, this Bible book was changed, or whatever. He knew all, the, this guy could have taken his oral comps in his sleep. And we're sitting there, and we're talking to this, and I'm literally thinking, I'm a doofus. You know, I'm, I, what am I doing here? This guy's, this guy's amazing, and I've been here two years longer than he is. He's been, and I, I don't know any of the answers. So we have a fairly long conversation about this, with this guy about how he got to this point. And he really loves theology, and he loves doctrine, and he loves the Bible, and he continues just to read and study. I mean, his free time, well, we're doing free time where we're like hanging out in the student center. This guy's got his nose in a book and reading something. But what was striking was that when it came to practical questions of faith, for example, 
what do you say to somebody whose spouse has died in a pastoral fashion to bring them the comfort of God's love? We saw him stumble. And actually not just stumble, but he would have said things in those moments that were actually pretty damaging. Not in the content, but in the presentation. It became pretty clear to the bunch of us, and I don't know which one of us finally said it to him, but it became clear that this, this young man who had all the knowledge and all the understanding simply didn't have the practical experience of ministry yet. Someone, one of us, made the comment to him, do yourself and do the church a favor, because he wanted to become a pastor, not a, not a professor. He wasn't going the academic route. He was going the pastoral route. We said, do yourself in the kingdom of God and the church a favor. Before you get out of this place, spend at least one, maybe two years volunteering for cadets. Go be with a bunch of middle school kids. Go spend time with a tutoring ministry, a homeless ministry. Go spend time somewhere where you have to take all of this wonderful stuff that you have up here and bring it into the lives of another. God be praised I ran into this young man about two and a half years ago now. He had since graduated from seminary and he was in a church. And he came to me and he actually spoke of how much that conversation with the four of us old guys inside the seminary student center meant to him because it challenged him to think about how he was working out his salvation with fear and trembling. He had all the right answers. He had all the right knowledge. But he had never really pursued what it meant for him to have a space and a place in the kingdom of God where he was being sheep-like. That challenge is for many of us. We have right answers, we have right knowledge, we have right understanding. We know many, many good things. What are you doing with it? What are you who are, you know, a young person, 6th, 7th, 8th, 10th, 12th grade, what are you already beginning to do in the kingdom of God with the gifts and the abilities because the time is short? Now go out and serve as the three parables of Matthew 25 put in front of us. For us to wonder that for ourselves should be a very challenging task. Where are we taking all the wonderful things that we learn and we know and that God has given us through his grace in his word and in the church and in theology and all those other things, where are we living those out in the lives of others by meeting their needs? As we look back at the text, we see some insights that the word gives to us on how we do this and how we can move towards this. Your first thing that you'll notice is all the things that Christ brings up that the king says, if you do these for the least of these, my brothers, you do for me. They're all constant. 
There will always be the poor among you, the text says. There will always be the widowed. There will always be those in prison. There will always be those who are hungry. There will always be those who are thirsty. I disagree with Bill Gates who says that we can eliminate poverty because I think personally that poverty is something in many ways that God gives to us in order for us to have a reason to live out the life we've been given. All of these things will be there. And you and I then, if they're always there, can always make the choice to turn towards them or to turn away from them. We can always choose because every moment of every day, these things are in front of us. We hear constantly the news reports of poverty this. We hear the news reports about prison and how overcrowded they are. We hear about the homeless situation, even here in Redlands. They're always there, and you and I have the choice to turn towards as a sheep or turn away away as as a goat. Christ is saying to his disciples, I am always around you in another's needs that you are equipped to meet. Meet them and you meet me. You and I are equipped. If we have something to drink, we are equipped. If we have something to eat, we are equipped. If we have clothing to share, we are equipped. If we have a presence that we can go and visit somebody, we are equipped. None of these things that Christ puts in front of the disciples are hard, consuming things. They are simple things. Share water. Share bread. Share a jacket. Share comfort. And if you and I will do these things, there is reward. If we will step away from them, there's consequence. The kingdom of God grows as the disciples reflect the grace of God in Christ in each meeting with Jesus that the disciples might stumble upon. See, these are moments in some ways Jesus is putting in front of the disciples where they reflect back to him the grace that he has given them. It's almost in some ways like a test. Jesus says to them, I've given you grace. Now as you show it back to me in encountering another's needs, I see, is that my grace, the grace I gave you? Is this thing getting, is it growing? Is it developing? I gave you the gift of eternal life. I gave you a hope and a purpose. I gave you gifts and abilities. Now when it's coming back to me as you serve others, I can see what it is that you have done with it. It's grown or it's shrunk. It's developed or it's stagnant. It's an opportunity for us in some ways, uh, very much so, say to God, thank you for what you gave me. Now I give it back to you. For us, we best work out our salvation with fear and trembling from Philippians 2 verse 12 by receiving God's grace as fuel 
to love and serve others. Yes, it is salvation, but we have received grace so that we are equipped, so that we have the ability, so that we have the compulsion, so that we have the gratitude to go and serve another. And as we do, that salvation grows in us, grows in fear and trembling. And you notice it says fear and trembling. Why would it say fear and trembling? Because sometimes that's hard. Because sometimes it means that you need to look harder in different spaces to find the places where God is calling you to go out and meet the needs of those whom he's putting in your path so that you might encounter him. It takes work. It takes effort. It takes truly a commitment on our part to see those spaces and places. Take a risk in faith that God is calling us to these things. And then see what he does with them. And the Spirit equips us in several ways to do this. You all have abilities. God has given you the compulsion to serve in different places. I look at some of you folks who are involved with a thing like MCCA. There are folks who would die on the mountain of MCCA. Why? God has given you the compulsion to be a part of that. God be praised. Continue to work out your salvation in fear and trembling by following that compulsion with the abilities that God has given you. He's given you a community which provides opportunities for you and I to serve. And he's given us the opportunity, obviously, to be a part of things. It's one of the reasons why when you look at the bulletin, when you look at the worship folder, and you see the announcements there of things that are going on, for you to prayerfully consider this question Jesus, are you calling me to encounter you in one of these things? Or is needs within the community? Or needs within your workspace? Needs within your neighborhood? Needs within your school? For those of you who are students, you're on the playground, and you see those kids who sit alone on the picnic bench because no one is their friend. No one cares about them. When I was alone, You came and visited me. Perhaps that young person sitting at the picnic table is Jesus in disguise. Now some of you are going to say, wait, hold on, there's going to be abuse by people who we serve. And you're absolutely right. There will be. But let me give you this tool. You and I see every day if we go on a freeway and we get off on an exit, what do we see? We see people with signs there, help wanted, God bless, however they say it. And there's many of us who think if we give them a dollar, what are they going to do? They're going to what? They're going to use it for buy drugs or to drink or something. And that's absolutely very possible. But let me encourage you and I to think about it this way. I don't often give money to people like that. I have in the past, but here's how I do it where I'm trying really to encounter Jesus in this. If I have a dollar bill or a five dollar bill in my wallet and I'm going to get it, I am praying the whole time, Lord, in faith, I offer this gift to you as an offering that you might be glorified in this person's life. This is a gift of faith I give to you, O Father. Do with it what you will. 
Because when we offer what we offer with our abilities, time, and talents in faith, God always honors faith. So for us to think about that, and it's not just in those spaces. There's places where you have in your own life, your neighbor has needs. Your, your, your family has needs. There are people within your workplace who have needs that you can be a part of meeting. And as you are part of meeting them, that you're praying the whole time, Lord, may I in faith offer this because God might not do something in that person's life whose life might be changed. Yours. Why? Because in that meeting, you may have just encountered Jesus. And when we meet Jesus, we are always changed. As we meet Jesus in giving love to others, the Spirit grows in us and transforms us to see even more of Christ in the world around us. See, part of the fundamental work here that's going on is it's not just another's needs that are met. Frankly, if I give a person a meal, that's going to help them maybe for a few hours. But who is it really going to change? It's going to change me. Why? Because I grow in compassion. I grow in a willingness to see another's needs. I grow in my sensitivity with my eyes to see the spaces and places where the transformation I have received as a gift of God in Jesus Christ has taken root in my life, and I'm expressing that in gratitude. Years ago, I worked with a ministry. Uh, we supported a ministry um, in um, an inner city, and it was a very small ministry, and it was a small ministry for a very long time. In fact, when it would come up in discussion whether or not the church should support this ministry, the question was posed, should we support an unsuccessful ministry? Because there really wasn't a lot of growth. We didn't hear a lot of stories of transformation, or oh, a couple here and there, but the, the, the resources levied in this ministry were pretty significant. And it just didn't seem to be going well. The group that I was a part of ended up meeting and going and meeting with this inner city ministry and spending time just living life and having some meals and meeting different people in their neighborhood. And we were talking about what was success for this ministry with the people who were leading it. There was two couples who were leading it. And they said, you know what? Your criticism, critique, is a very fair critique. If you're looking for numbers growth, if you're looking for a ministry to flourish and impact more and more and more neighborhoods and more and more and more homes, then we're not a ministry that you want to support. But before you make the decision to pull the plug, we want you to hear something from us. And then one of the men began to spoke and began to speak, and he said, you know, when I came here, I did it because my wife felt called to this neighborhood. And I'm really glad that she was called to this neighborhood, but I really didn't want to have much of a part of it. I had a job that I was going to use to support us as best as I was able. It was still not going to quite make ends meet, but it was going to be the best that we could do. And my wife was going to be a part of these things, and I was going to support her in that way. He said, what happened was my wife 
I didn't want her to, but she invited people into our home over and over and over again, different couples. She would invite, um, she would invite this single mom. She would invite this high school kid. She would invite this gangbanger into our home and sit, and they would sit at the table and talk, and we would have a meal together. And at first, I was almost, I was a spectator sitting against the wall just listening to what my wife was saying. But over time, because people would come into our home over and over and over again, and I saw what my wife's ministry was doing just in one or two lives, my heart changed. My heart changed to the point now where this is my neighborhood, not the neighborhood that my wife's ministry is. That this, these are my people, that these are my friends sitting at the kitchen table that when they proclaim needs to us, I don't want to meet them just because I feel I'm supposed to. I'm supposed to. I want to meet them because truly I love them. What this ministry that's unsuccessful in many ways has done has changed me because I've met Jesus. Folks, for us to understand that when God calls us to serve others, to seek the needs where we clothe, where we feed, where we give water, where we give presence and comfort, that the life changed may not be that of the person that we serve, but fundamentally, the life changed is our own, truly, as we meet Jesus. Let's pray together. We pray, O oh God, that our eyes might be opened to the places where you call us to meet you, and that we understand that there is truly consequence to turning back, turning our back on the needs of others, that for us to ignore grace's work in our lives because it's too hard, because it's messy, because it takes too much energy because it demands something that we don't want to give. For us to move beyond that through your Spirit's work in our hearts and in our lives, to want to, in gratitude, encounter you in the needs of others. Lord, may you do that work in us. May we grow in our sensitivity. May we grow truly as well in our desire to show the love given us in Christ in the lives of those around us. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.